The Toys of Peace and Other Papers by Saki Read by Richard Crowest Fate Rex Dillett was nearly 24, almost good-looking and quite penniless. His mother was supposed to make him some sort of an allowance out of what her creditors allowed her, and Rex occasionally strayed into the ranks of those who earn fitful salaries as secretaries or companions to people who are unable to cope unaided with their correspondence or their leisure. For a few months he had been assistant editor and business manager of a paper devoted to fancy mice, but the devotion had been all on one side, and the paper disappeared with a certain abruptness from club reading-rooms and other haunts where it had made a gratuitous appearance. Still, Rex lived with some air of comfort and well-being, as one can live if one is born with a genius for that sort of thing, and a kindly providence usually arranged that his weekend invitations coincided with the dates on which his one white dinner waistcoat was in a laundry-returned condition of dazzling cleanness. He played most games badly, and was shrewd enough to recognise the fact, but he had developed a marvellously accurate judgement in estimating the play and chances of other people, whether in a golf match, billiard handicap, or croquet tournament. By dint of parading his opinions of such and such a player's superiority with a sufficient degree of youthful assertiveness, he usually succeeded in provoking a wager at liberal odds and he looked to his weekend winnings to carry him through the financial embarrassments of his midweek existence. The trouble was, as he confided to Clovis Sangrail, that he never had enough available or even prospective cash at his command to enable him to fix the wager at a figure really worth winning. Some day, he said, I shall come across a really safe thing, a bet that simply can't go astray, and then I shall put it up for all I'm worth or rather for a good deal more than I'm worth if you sold me up to the last button. It would be awkward if it didn't happen to come off, said Clovis. It would be more than awkward, said Rex. It would be a tragedy. All the same, it would be extremely amusing to bring it off. Fancy awaking in the morning with about three hundred pounds standing to one's credit. I should go and clear out my hostess's pigeon loft before breakfast out of sheer good temper.' "'Your hostess of the moment mightn't have a pigeon-loft,' said Clovis. "'I always choose hostesses that have,' said Rex. "'A pigeon-loft is indicative of a careless, extravagant, genial disposition "'such as I like to see around me. "'People who strew corn broadcast for a lot of feathered inanities "'that just sit about cooing and giving each other the glad eye in a Louis XIV manner "'are pretty certain to do you well.' "'Young Strinit is coming down this afternoon.' said Clovis, reflectively. I dare say you won't find it difficult to get him to back himself at billiards. He plays a pretty useful game, but he's not quite as good as he fancies he is. I know one member of the party who can walk round him, said Rex softly, an alert look coming into his eyes. That cadaverous-looking major who arrived last night. I've seen him play at St. Moritz. If I could get Strinit to lay odds on himself against the major, the money would be safe in my pocket.' This looks like the good thing I've been watching and praying for. Don't be rash, counselled Clovis. Strinit may play up to his self-imagined form once in a blue moon. I intend to be rash, said Rex quietly, and the look on his face corroborated his words. 
are you all going to flock to the billiard room? asked Teresa Thundleford after dinner, with an air of some disapproval and a good deal of annoyance. I can't see what particular amusement you find in watching two men prodding little ivory balls about on a table. Oh, well, said her hostess, it's a way of passing the time, you know. A very poor way to my mind, said Mrs. Thundleford. Now, I was going to have shown all of you the photographs I took in Venice last summer. You showed them to us last night, said Mrs. Coovering hastily. Those were the ones I took in Florence. These are quite a different lot. Oh, well, sometime tomorrow we can look at them. You can leave them down in the drawing-room, and then everyone can have a look. I should prefer to show them when you are all gathered together, as I have quite a lot of explanatory remarks to make about Venetian art and architecture, on the same lines as my remarks last night on the Florentine galleries. Also, there are some verses of mine that I should like to read to you on the rebuilding of the Campanile. But, of course, if you all prefer to watch Major Latin and Mr. Strinit knocking balls about on a table. They are both supposed to be first-rate players, said the hostess. I have yet to learn that my verses and my art causerie are of second-rate quality, said Mrs. Thundleford with acerbity. However, as you all seem bent on watching a silly game, there's no more to be said. I shall go upstairs and finish some writing. Later on, perhaps, I will come down and join you. To one, at least, of the onlookers the game was anything but silly. It was absorbing, exciting, exasperating, nerve-stretching, and finally... It grew to be tragic. The Major with the San Moritz reputation was playing a long way below his form. Young Strinit was playing slightly above his, and had all the luck of the game as well. From the very start the balls seemed possessed by a demon of contrariness. They trundled about complacently for one player, and they would go nowhere for the other. A hundred and seven, seventy-four, sang out the youth who was marking. In a game of two hundred and fifty up, it was an enormous lead to hold. Clovis watched the flush of excitement die away from Dillett's face and a hard, white look take its place. "'How much have you got on?' whispered Clovis. The other whispered the sum through dry, shaking lips. It was more than he or anyone connected with him could pay. He had done what he had said he would do. He had been rash. Two hundred and six, ninety-eight. Rex heard a clock strike ten somewhere in the hall, then another somewhere else, and another, and another. The house seemed full of striking clocks. Then in the distance the stable clock chimed in. In another hour they would all be striking eleven, and he would be listening to them as a disgraced outcast, unable to pay, even in part, the wager he had challenged. Two hundred and eighteen, a hundred and three. The game was as good as over. Rex was as good as done for. He longed desperately for the ceiling to fall in, for the house to catch fire, for anything to happen that would put an end to that horrible rolling to and fro of red and white ivory that was jostling him nearer and nearer to his doom. Two hundred and twenty-eight, a hundred and seven. Rex opened his cigarette case. It was empty. That at least gave him a pretext to slip away from the room for the purpose of refilling it. He would spare himself the drawn-out torture of watching that hopeless game played out to the bitter end. He backed away from the circle of absorbed watchers and made his way up a short stairway to a long, silent corridor of bedrooms, each with a guest's name written in a little square on the door. 
In the hush that reigned in this part of the house, he could still hear the hateful click-click of the balls. If he waited for a few minutes longer, he would hear the little outbreak of clapping and buzz of congratulation that would hail Strinit's victory. On the alert tension of his nerves there broke another sound— the aggressive, wrath-inducing breathing of one who sleeps in heavy after-dinner slumber. The sound came from a room just at his elbow. The card on the door bore the announcement, Mrs. Thundleford. The door was just slightly ajar. Rex pushed it open an inch or two more and looked in. The august Teresa had fallen asleep over an illustrated guide to Florentine art galleries, at her side, somewhat dangerously near the edge of the table, was a reading lamp. If fate had been decently kind to him, thought Rex bitterly, that lamp would have been knocked over by the sleeper and would have given them something to think of beside billiard matches. There are occasions when one must take one's fate in one's hands. Rex took the lamp in his. Two hundred and thirty-seven, one hundred and fifteen. Strinit was at the table, and the balls lay in good position for him. He had a choice of two fairly easy shots, a choice which he was never to decide. A sudden hurricane of shrieks and a rush of stumbling feet sent everyone flocking to the door. The Dillett boy crashed into the room, carrying in his arms the vociferous and somewhat dishevelled Teresa Thundleford. Her clothing was certainly not a mass of flames, as the more excitable members of the party afterwards declared— but the edge of her skirt and part of the table cover in which she had been hastily wrapped were alight in a flickering, half-hearted manner. Rex flung his struggling burden onto the billiard table, and for one breathless minute the work of beating out the sparks with rugs and cushions and playing on them with soda-water siphons engrossed the energies of the entire company. "'It was lucky I was passing when it happened,' panted Rex. "'Someone had better see to the room. I think the carpet is alight.' As a matter of fact, the promptitude and energy of the rescuer had prevented any great damage being done, either to the victim or her surroundings. The billiard table had suffered most, and had to be laid up for repairs. Perhaps it was not the best place to have chosen for the scene of salvage operations. But then, as Clovis remarked, when one is rushing about with a blazing woman in one's arms, one can't stop to think out exactly where one is going to put her. Thank you.